Okay. So let me ask a question. What makes a person a Christian? I've talked about that before. I don't like that word Christian because it means so many things to so many people, but I'm going to use it this morning. What makes a person a true Christian? A true Christian. And that's going to be my topic today. And because here's the truth. If we get that wrong, I mean, there's nothing worse than getting that wrong, right? Nothing worse. Many years ago, I heard a sermon. This is probably 12 or 13 years ago by John Ortberg where he talked about the fact that Jesus had some followers, but he had a lot of fans, a lot of fans. And several years later, maybe three or four after that, Kyle Eidelman came out with a book entitled Not a Fan. I don't know if he was, you know, challenged, if, if Ortberg got him excited about that topic. But in um, both Ortberg and in that book, they talk about two kinds of people um, who hang out around Jesus. Casual fans and committed followers. So fans and followers. And, I mean, here's what a fan looks like, okay? Those are pretty awesome. I like the... Is, and that almost was like Gary Lauk's like 20 years ago. I'm not sure. Um, that may be an old photo. But, I mean, here's what a fan looks like. Fans go to football games, right? They go to the game, but they're never in the game. They never break a sweat, never take a hard hit on the field, right? Um, they know about the player. They may even think they like players, but we don't know them, right? Maybe if you knew them, you'd be like, that guy I like, I really don't like that guy, right? Um, but again, don't know any of them. That for any fan, there's nothing required. There's no sacrifice made. Many times fans aren't even at the game. They're just watching on, online or on television, right? Um, and at critical times, when the results aren't to their liking, they, uh, they can be pretty critical of their team, right? That's what fans are like. Um, Ortberg and Eidemann both talk about that the difference between a, a casual fan and a committed follower is this, that fans know about Jesus but people who are committed followers, they know Jesus personally. That fans are impressed by him, they admire him, they applaud him, they'll show up to his church and they think he's a great guy, right? But committed followers are people that they don't just, they know him and because of that they're devoted to him, they're committed to him, they're surrendered to him. And they both talk about that fans confuse their knowledge and their admiration of Jesus with devotion to Jesus. That they confuse their admiration of him and their knowledge of him to being committed to him. In fact, in his book, Kyle Eidemann says this, that the biggest, in his opinion, the biggest threat to the church today is fans who call themselves Christians but aren't actually interested in following Christ. They want to be close enough to get all the benefits but not close, so close that it requires anything from them. And he goes on, he says that for some, in America, the church has become less of a sanctuary and more of a stadium. That's pretty profound, huh? A place where you can come every week and cheer for Jesus, but have absolutely no interest in truly following him. No interest in following him. Now, I want you to know, Jesus was never interested in fans. What he was seeking was followers. So this week, we read... In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, this text, where Paul said, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Some other translations that I like, the New Living, examine yourselves to see if your faith is genuine. Test yourselves. The Weymouth New Testament, test yourselves to discover whether you are true believers. 
put your own selves under examination. And the Amplified Bible says, test and evaluate yourselves to see whether you are in the faith and living your lives as committed believers. I mean, Paul says it, it's the word of God. We should probably do it, right? We should probably do it. So this morning, I want to give you a framework to do that. And what I'm going to do is I want to go to the master himself. I want to go to our Lord Jesus, and I want to go to something that he taught to give us the framework for how to do that. And it's in Matthew chapter 7. So I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 7 for me. We're going to be reading from the Sermon on the Mount this week. Um, And we're going to find ourselves in chapter 7. We're getting towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And I really want you to know that when Jesus was preaching this sermon, he was not preaching to atheists. This was, there weren't the, in the crowd, it wasn't agnostics, it wasn't pagans, it wasn't apostates, it wasn't heretics. That the people who he was giving this sermon to were religious folk. They were the churchgoers of his day, okay? The people that are hearing this are the churchgoers of his day. And in this sermon, among other things, he's defining what genuine discipleship to him looks like. What does it mean to really be a follower? And we're going to be in verses 13 to 23. And as one author says, in this section, Jesus turns his attention to those religious folks who've been tragically duped into a false sense of security, thinking they have a golden ticket to heaven, when in fact they were traveling headlong straight down the highway to an eternity with God in hell. Uh, And if you think that's a strong statement, wait till we see what Jesus says. So I want you to read with me in verse 13. Verse 13, Paul says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Uh, Who has never read that and not a little bit shuddered, right? I mean, those words, narrow gate, I mean, yeah, through the narrow gate, wide is the gate, broad is the road, many enter that one. But the other gate is small, and that's a narrow road, the one that leads to life, and only a few find it. Um, Man, that is so sobering whenever I read that. And then in the next verses, so from 15 to 23, Jesus is going to apply that concept of the the broad road and the narrow road to two kinds of people. Because remember, it's religious people that are listening to him that day, to two kinds of people. In the words of J.C. Ryle, an old pastor, he's going to talk in verses 15 to 20 about false prophets, and then he's going to talk in verse 21 to 23 about false professors. He calls them unsound teachers and unsound hearers, that those are the two groups he's talking to, to. If I were to take the fan language, he's talking to the fakes that were in the crowd and to the fans that were in the crowd. So we read about the fakes, the unsound teachers, first in verses 15 to 19. That's not going to be my focus today, but let's read verses 15 to 19. Here's what Jesus says. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes with thorn bushes or figs with thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. So he's talking about those false prophets. But what I want to focus on this morning is verses 21, 22, and 23, where Jesus is talking about people who are in danger of unknowingly being on the wrong road. 
they're in danger of unknowingly being on the wrong, wrong road. And so in, in verses 21 to 23, he's going to talk about two kinds of fans, two kinds of fans. Uh, what George Whitfield called the almost Christian. Those who say but do not do because they don't know him. And those who do but do not know. And in doing this, Jesus will deal with two common misconceptions of what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian. So I want to look at verse 21 first. And there we're going to see... Um, this first kind of fan, which are those who think that what they say means they're on the right road. Look at verse 21. He says, not everyone who says, and by the way, that is a, the tense in Greek means this is an ongoing. I mean, they are saying it today, tomorrow, they're saying it all the time, who continually say to me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who says that will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Wow, that's so powerful, right? Not everybody who says, Lord, Lord. And I mean, what they're saying is significant, to call him Lord. And in Jewish culture, if you say something twice, that was a really strong emphasis. So they're saying, Lord, Lord. I mean, it's showing great enthusiasm, enthusiasm, great fervor, and they're constantly saying this. Um, if nothing else, whoever these people are, these fans, they're sincere. If nothing else, they're sincere. But Jesus says they won't enter the kingdom. They won't enter the kingdom. So this speaks to those people who make a verbal claim to Jesus, but whose lives don't show it. Because at the end of that, it says, only the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. So hang with me on that last part, okay? These are people who say, Lord, Lord, but they don't live, Lord, Lord. They're people whose actions and the direction of their life, it belies and it denies, it belies and it denies the affirmation and the declaration of their lips. And Jesus, I think, is making it poignantly clear that this is, it is not enough for a person to simply say, Lord, Lord, that just because you are a professor of faith in Jesus does not mean you are a possessor of genuine saving faith. That is a sobering thought. Is that not a sobering thought? That just because you're a professor, and I don't mean any issue professor, but a professor of Jesus doesn't mean you're a possessor of genuine saving faith. Kyle Eidelman says, we live at a time when we've become increasingly comfortable with separating what we say we believe with how we live. We've convinced ourselves that our beliefs are sincere, even if they have no impact on how we live. And I want you to know that when you come to know Jesus, he changes a life. He changes a life. That's why in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, which we uh, have read this week, anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life has gone, a new life has become. Has, has begun. It's why Jesus in Matthew 13 says that when somebody fully gives their life to him, he says they will produce fruit. Some 30, some 60, some 100, but they will produce fruit. Man, I have a laundry list of famous pastors who've spoken to this. I'm only going to quote two. Billy Graham said, no man, can be, no man can be said to be truly converted to Christ who's not been his will to Christ. He may give intellectual assent to the claims of Christ. He may have had emotional religious experiences. However, he is not truly converted until he has surrendered his will to Christ as Lord, Savior, and Master. And Charles Spurgeon said, Obedience is the hallmark of faith and the proof of grace. He that trusts God 
obeys God. And he added an important, a little addendum to that. Faith to remind us, faith is the fountain, the foundation, the foster of obedience. Jesus, James, James, Jesus' brother, put it this way in James 2, chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. And Jesus, I mean, he spoke so clearly to this. In Luke 6, 46, a parallel to this text, he says, why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you do not do what I say? That's a big disconnect, right? Why do you do that? And in John 14, 23, such a powerful passage to me. Jesus said, anyone who loves me will obey my teachings. Anybody who loves me will obey. I want to be really crystal clear, crystal clear about something, though. Look closely at that verse, that Luke 14, 23. Tell me, which comes first? The love, the relationship with Jesus, or the obeying? Which comes first? Huh? The love comes first, okay? So let's be really clear. So when he talks about just because you say, Lord, Lord, it doesn't mean you're going to the kingdom of heaven. You have to obey my will. It isn't. We're going to talk about this in a minute because the next people are the really religious folk, okay, who do all the time. He's, just saying, he's talking about obedience that flows out of relationship. And this is really going to be clear. So I want to get to verses 22 and 23 because he's going to hit that kind of person next. So the second kind of fan, the second kind of unsound here that Jesus is going to talk about or that he talks about are those who think that what they do, because of they, what they do, they're on the right road. He wants to talk to those people. So look at verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, that's, that word is so strong, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did a form of do, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. This speaks to people who do a lot of religious stuff, maybe even for Jesus or in his name, but who don't know him personally. And I want to tell you from this, what I see is just as dangerous is assuming that what we say means that we're on the right road is the assumption that what we do means we're on the right road. One of the ways to know that you're this kind of fan and not a true follower is if somebody asks you, hey, are you a Christian or is wanting you to talk about being a Christian, the first thing that comes to your mind are the things you do. Oh, I go to church I put money in the offering, I actually volunteer, I do some Bible studies, um, that that's the primary way of you think of being a Christian is by the things you do. Look at those examples Jesus gives. Um, man, they're surprising, they're very impressive. Anybody here ever prophesied? Anybody? If you are, probably they're, they're afraid to say it, that's okay, because <laughs> it is a gift, but anybody here ever cast out a demon? Anybody? Anybody here can claim, lay claim to that thing? Um, anybody performed a miracle in here? I mean, I've not done any of those things. And I'm like, man, if those people, if they can't get in with that list, I'm never getting in with my list, right, of the things I do. And I really think that's the point Jesus is making by mentioning those things. Is he's intentionally, I think, choosing dramatic, extraordinary spiritual achievements to make something very, very clear. That no matter how much good you do, no matter how much, no matter how many religious things you accomplish, that is not what makes you a true follower. That's not what puts you on the narrow road. 
What you do is not what puts you on the narrow road. Um, listen to me. I, I have seen this so many, in all my years with people, that the human default mode is to want to earn salvation, but what I do, that is the human default mode, is I want to earn it. The old Smith Barney way, for those of you of my generation, right? You want to earn it. Like the Marines. I saw this many years ago when, on a trip to Indiana. They want their salvation to be earned, never given. Jesus in John 6 is talking to a large group, and the people ask, what are the things God wants us to do? Because we are so oriented to do that I get into a relationship by God with what I do. What does God want us to do? And I love Jesus' answered. He replies, the work God wants you to do is this. Would you believe in the one he sent, right? Believe in me. That's what he wants you to do. And I've talked many times before that Christianity is not about religion, it's about a relationship. It's not about law, it's about love. And whenever I've spoken about this, this is a definition that I always give of religion. When I'm talking about it's not about religion, relationship, this is what I'm talking about by that word. It is a system of duties or rules and observances or rituals that are intended by a person to earn God's approval and acceptance and thereby gain some benefit from him. For example, earning eternal salvation. Is that, defin is that clear? That's what religion is. And I want to tell you, Jesus is not about religion. It is not about you doing rules and rituals, following rules and rituals to earn his acceptance. That's not the point. Because in religion, the sole focus is on those rules and rituals as a way into God's good graces. And that's the opposite of the gospel. That's not the way into a relationship with God. Let me show you some verses that we read a little over a month ago in Romans. And these are out of the New Testament we've been reading, the New Century Version. Kind of small, but in Romans 4, Paul says, When people work, their pay is not given as a gift, but as something earned. But people cannot do any work that will make them right with God. You hear that? People cannot do any work that will make them right with God. So they trust, must trust in him, who makes even evil people right in his sight. Then God accepts their faith, and that makes them right with God. God, without paying attention to their deeds, makes people right with himself. God, without paying attention to their deeds, makes people right with himself. And then Romans 9, a really profound text, where Paul says the non-Jewish people, like us, they've been made right with God by faith. But the Jewish people who tried to make themselves right with God by following rules have not been made right with him. Why not? Because they tried to earn it through their works instead of coming to him by faith. I can say this about them. They really try to follow God, but they do not know the right way. That's what a fan is who thinks that by doing they're on the right road. They really are trying, but they don't know the right way because they did not know the way that God makes people right with him. They tried to make themselves right in their own way, so they did not accept God's way of making people right. I want you to know, being a good person does not make anybody right with God. It's having a relationship with him through Jesus that makes a person right with God. As I heard early in my Christian faith, going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Just like living in your garage doesn't make you a car, right? Or going to McDonald's doesn't make you a hamburger. So let me summarize in Matthew 7, 21 to 23, Jesus is talking about two kinds of fans, two kinds. Those who think that what they say means they're on the right road, 
and those who think that what they do means they're on the right road. Those who say but do not do because they don't know him, and those who do but do not know. Those who have words without fruit, and those who have works without relationship. Empty words, empty works. And the thing that's missing with both is a genuine relationship with and commitment to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. That's what's missing with both. One group confuses their profession in, of belief in Jesus with a genuine relationship with him, and the other confuses their good deeds and religious practices for a genuine relationship. But both are flawed in their assumptions, and they don't know what it means to really know him and follow him. Um, it's understandable, right? We can't blame them. I said it's the human default. I think it's human nature for us to want to put emphasis on say and do because those things are measurable, they're tangible, they're outward, they're external. It is so easy to want to measure faith by those things, right? It's so easy. But neither words nor works can replace a genuine relationship with Jesus. A.W. Poser, to Poser, <laughs> that's funny. A.W. <laughs> Tozer not even about this text, but speaks to both, says the Bible recognizes no faith that does not lead to obedience. That's the first group. Nor does it recognize any obedience that does not spring from faith. That's the second group. I think this passage is so important to me. Um, in it, Jesus is describing a genuine disciple, a true follower. Ultimately, ultimately, what makes you a follower isn't what you say. It isn't what you do. It is who you know intimately. You know, when Jesus says to that last group, when he says, I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. That word know in Greek is so powerful and profound. It's the word gnosko. And it doesn't refer to head knowledge, to knowing facts, for knowing about. It is the word for having such an intimate experience with something. It's like being intimately related. It is used in Matthew of that, Matthew, that when Mary became pregnant, that it said Matthew had not known her yet. Okay, it's this word, intimate relationship. So Jesus is emphasizing in here that these people don't have an intimate relationship. So Jesus, he identifies his true followers, not so much on what they say or on what they do, but on do they have an intimate relationship with him. A relationship that's entered in, into him with him on his terms a relationship that's based on trust in and commitment to him as lord and savior and a relationship that's based solely on what he has done for us it's only based on what he has done that's why last week at the baptism we had this sign up here christ alone it's in him alone that's the bottom line it all comes down to that personal relationship with jesus whether you know him and whether he knows you let me say one more thing. Here's what I'm not saying. A true I'm not saying, so don't get me wrong, that a true follower won't say or won't do. Because a true follower who knows him will say and will do, right? But what they say and what they do flows out of the relationship. It flows out of their intimacy with him, and it flows out of the Holy Spirit who is in them, bearing his fruit through them. And that's why at the beginning of the year, uh, we defined a disciple based on Matthew 4.19 as this. Someone who personally knows Jesus, who personally knows Jesus and is following him, is being changed by him, and is on mission with him. And if you don't have one of these nice cards, I saw one on somebody's refrigerator the other day. We've got like one in each row. You can take one home to emphasize that. 
Okay, Lisa Hubner, I want you to come up for a minute. Lisa Hubner, you guys have heard my story, and you know I grew up unchurched, right? So I didn't grow up saying, Lord, Lord. I didn't grow up doing things to earn the favor of God because I just, I didn't care. I didn't know about any of that. So these people are not my story. But the second one probably, would you say, or both, I don't know, are your story, would you say? Let me grab my my little questions here. Sorry about that. So, Lisa, you came out of a church background. Yeah, you do need a mic. That would be helpful. <laughs> Thanks for, for doing that. You grew up in church. Tell us about that. I did, and I definitely identify with the second camp. Those who think what they do means they're on the right road. And I grew up, um, started going to church. I was probably four. Um, with my parents, and then really all the way up until high school was really very actively involved in a church of tremendously kind and loving people. They were so very supportive of me. I mean, when I went off to college, it was like everyone rallied and sent me off with so much love, Um, and I was very involved there. I taught, there wasn't a lot, it was a small church, there wasn't a lot for youth group. I mean, there wasn't a youth group, there wasn't a lot for high school age kids, so I wanted to be there. So I taught Sunday school to second graders, and I was a liturgist, um, you know, the responsive readings. I would go and do that on Sunday mornings, and I ran the sound, sat up in the balcony by myself and ran the sound system. So I was there every Sunday. I even, this is kind of funny, I remembered Aunt Laura, lots of you guys know her, she works here too. She bought me a Bible, and I was really curious, I mean, I read. I just read Proverbs. I thought, okay, this seems easy enough to understand. I would read it and read it, and Proverbs 6 talks about the seven things God hates, and I thought, well, that seems important to know, so I memorized that, and just, I mean, I didn't know what I was doing, but I was always around and had a, I mean, really, now I know a hunger for the things of God. Yeah, so you did have a hunger for God. Did you, growing up, was the gospel something clearly proclaimed in that church, that that salvation is by faith in Jesus alone, but not, not by what I do, and was that something you heard or understood? Definitely not. Um, I remember hearing the story of the prodigal son over and over and over. I must have heard that sermon a hundred different ways, but never heard that I had any personal involvement in that. I knew the story of um, Jesus' death and resurrection. I mean, I heard that every Easter. I heard it all the time, and I knew, okay, that Jesus died on the cross. But I never heard that there was anything required of me, any invitation into that story. I just, I knew it, but um, never heard the gospel clearly. Um, and I think I, I didn't ha- I didn't even feel like anything was missing. I mean, the pastor, everyone in the church seemed okay to hear the Bible stories, and that was kind of it. And I felt you know, pretty good about that. I was more involved in church than most people I knew, so I was definitely thinking by what I did, I was on the right road. Yeah. And didn't have any thoughts about eternity. Yeah. So if I asked you, what does it mean to be a Christian? Yeah. Back then, it just would have been that. Being in church. Yeah, Yeah. being in church. I was never confronted with any idea of my own sin or a need to surrender to God in any way. And 
what what was was there like as you were a teenager I think I've heard you talk was there something going on internally like a hunger or what or how would you describe Yeah so what actually happened one of my best friends grew up in the same church and when we were in junior high her parents had a stirring that they really sensed that there was something more to uh, to God and wanted to know that so they left our church and went to another church and it was there that she heard the gospel and accepted Christ and surrendered her life to him. And so I remember, I still have it. Um, she wrote me a letter on notebook paper and slipped it to me in the hallway at school one day. Just sharing with me about her relationship with Jesus. And I thought, this is different than what I know. And so when we got to high school, I started attending FCA with her. And um, still, you know, just kind of feeling things out. Nothing about my life had changed. In the spring, we went to Rock Springs 4-H Ranch um, for a conference. And so up until that point, I knew her, and I loved her. The only other Christian I knew at the time was a Christian. was this kind of weird guy in my class who wrote, I love Jesus on his trapper keeper. And I knew I didn't really <laughs> want any part of that. So, um, but I got to this camp, and there were college students running the camp who were so passionate about Jesus and talking about what it meant to have a relationship with him, um, to be saved. I'd never heard that before, and I was so struck by it, still sorting a lot of things out in my head, but we got to Sunday mornings of that weekend and spread out all over the camp, and I remember sitting on this rock and thinking, so I've heard this all weekend, and this seems right to me, and so I prayed that that day to receive Christ and got home and not a lot changed at that point because I was still attending my church and no one there was going to disciple me in my faith. But um, yeah, that's when that that first changed. Then um, when I got to be a senior in high school and was getting ready to graduate, another young man from our church who had gone away to college, who had accepted Christ, came back to our little town to be the youth pastor of my church and another. And I really connected with him, and he really started challenging me. I started to study the Bible, um, and he is actually the one who connected me with what is now Christian Challenge at Pittsburgh State. Mm. So cool. got involved there. So, Lisa, a lot of times if I'm working on a sermon, I know there are going to be some people in here that are unchurched and try to speak in some form to them. If you were to say, I'm sure there are people in here because there's, there's always going to be people uh, who don't really know him, who think it's what they say or what they do. If there's somebody who has a similar background to you, what would – I know we didn't plan this one. No, I've, I did. I've got, <laughs> you did? I've got okay. so many things That's awesome. Say. Yeah. So, you know, I often in sharing my story talk about how I knew that I had a hunger for the things of God that I couldn't explain. Um, I was alone in that in my family. My parents eventually, um, you know, stopped attending church, and so they dropped me off on Sunday morning. I'd attend, and they'd pick me up after. And so – I thought I, you know, I really had a hunger to know God, but now I know that he is the one who initiated that search. Um, I, I wouldn't have done that apart from the spirit working in my life. And so I know now that he had his hand on me and was drawing me in. Um, this is just kind of a neat story. So since my time of um, growing up and moving away, I had four close friends, different ages in that church that I grew up in who were similar to me. They would come to church every Sunday. One of them taught my the Sunday school class with me. Um, since that time, they've each made their way to somewhere where they heard the gospel. 
and gave their lives to Christ. And so I think about how God was pursuing each of us and eventually led us to understand salvation and what it meant to um, have a relationship with him. And so I now know that he was, he initiated that. And really one cool story that I just am so amazed by. So when I was six, my mom died of cancer. And there were, of course, that really rocked my small community. Um, And my dad had a friend from college who had a brother living in a neighboring town. I had never met him or his family. When I got to college and got involved in a little church there, I became friends with a couple, and and I realized that that was the connection. They had lived near my hometown, and um, their brother was a friend of my dad's. And so I really was drawn to this woman and started meeting with her. She was a mentor to me all through college. And um, she told me one time, yeah, I just remember hearing about that little girl in Fredonia who lost her mom, and I began praying for you then. Only God could do that, you know, that he would reach into her life and and just prompt her to pray for me. And then, you know, when I got to college, she discipled me in my faith. Um, so don't underestimate, if you're sitting here even and hearing this, don't underestimate that God has initiated that pursuit of you. Um, another thing, I really sense, you know, even when I was hanging around Christian things in high school but probably didn't quite understand it all yet, I really sensed that I was on the outside of something. I didn't know how to make my way in, and I think the difference the gospel made for me was knowing that I was invited into relationship with God, that he didn't want to keep me out there, that he was inviting me to a life of forgiveness and surrender of joy and purpose. And so I think I'd say if you're sitting here and you feel like maybe there's something you're not quite getting, pursue that feeling. Um, We'd love to talk to you about that. Um, Yeah, just consider that God initiated your search and rescue. Um, the, The last thing, you know, so growing up in this church where just all of the doing made me think I was okay, even after I came to Christ for years, I would say still, it's grace is such a slippery concept to know that God is not, there is nothing, like Darren said, nothing I can do that will make me right for, with God. Because my foundation was so different than that, it has taken me a long time to parse out um, grace, to grasp that. Um, I think also that, you know, er, so early on I was hearing Bible stories but not having any personal connection to those. It was really confusing to me when I started to believe, like, okay, did I believe that Sunday on the rock, or did I believe when I was a freshman in college sitting in the basement doing my laundry and reading my Bible, or, you know, and I remember talking to the woman who's now my sister-in-law at the time, she was a friend, and her just saying, you know, this is, any moment can be a stake in the ground moment, that um, it's all of that exact, like, when I believed or when I understood grace, to drive a stake in the ground and surrender my life to Christ at that moment, um, that, he, that he would accept that. And so I would say if you're wrestling, if you're confused, um, talk to Darren or one of us um, just to maybe make your stake in the ground moment um, to give your life to Christ if you're not sure. Yeah, good job, Lisa. Can we thank her?
and more importantly, like, give a, a praise to God for drawing her. Like, that's a great story. All of us who come to faith, it's a miracle, right? So, you know, I know, I came to this knowing a lot of us here don't need to hear this today, okay? I understand that. I didn't do this. Uh, this sermon to scare genuine believers and Christ followers into doubting their salvation. Trust me on that. That is not my purpose. Uh, when I came to faith, I think I spent the first five or six years of knowing Jesus every night praying the sinner's prayer. Just, I so desperately wanted to know him and just to make sure, okay? I've been there, and that's not my point, is to do that. Um, every time there was an invitation in our church, which was every Sunday, I went forward to make sure I was saved, okay? That's not, that's not my point. But here's what, here what I'm doing. I'm not trying to guilt trip anybody. But I want you to know I'll be accountable for God for everything I teach and preach. James says there's a greater judgment on people who do that. I'm going to be accountable to him. And I'm doing this sermon because I know that every church in the world has fans. Okay? That's why I'm doing this. That there are people at 12th this morning who simply think just because they say that they're on the narrow road. And I know there are people here who think that just because they do, they're on the narrow road. And that's serious to me. And here's what I learned from this text, that it is possible to think that you're on the narrow road. It is possible, but actually be on the broad road. Is that not a scary thought? In all likelihood, I just know there are people here this morning who are convinced that they're on the narrow path because of what they say or what they do. And a day is coming. Jesus talked about that day when many who have said the right things and many who have done the right things will hear Jesus say to them, away from me, I never knew you. I never had an intimate relationship with you. There will be a lot of people on that day who stand before God. Many, those are Jesus' words, many who thought they were followers to only find out that they were fans. That's Jesus speaking. That's not me, okay? And that's sobering, and this is serious because eternity hangs in the balance. Uh, and I'm even heightened more to this. I had a funeral yesterday, and I have one tomorrow. And I really feel that reality, that eternity hangs in the balance. Someone has said that the self-deception that one has saved when in fact he is actually lost is surely the most frightening of all deceptions. And that's, we learned last week, that's what Satan wants to blind people to. He wants to blind them to the truth of the gospel so that they're on the broad road thinking they're on the narrow. And that's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, examine yourselves to see if your faith is genuine. So, when it, I think Paul says that because when it comes to where I'm going to spend eternity, that I can't be afraid, we can't be afraid to ask the hard questions and take an honest look. And, you know, on which path are we on? I have a few questions to end. Kyle Eidelman, who wrote that book and who is a much more creative preacher than I am, had this question. Could it be that I have set cruise control, turned up the Christian radio, and I'm traveling down the road of destruction with a Jesus fish on my bumper? So here's my question today. 
for everybody. Am I a genuine follower of Jesus? And I'm not asking you, what do you say? What do you do? That's not my question. Are you a genuine follower of Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Do I know Jesus and does he know me? That's the question. That's the question. Have I accepted his free offer of forgiveness and relationship with him based solely on his death, burial, and resurrection? And if you're here this morning and you're like, I am not sure I know the answer to those. I'm just not sure. And you want to talk to somebody. We have put on all the seats a little card. And all you have to do is just check that. I'm interested in talking with somebody about the gospel. I'm just not sure. I'd love to have that conversation. And put your name and phone number. And then just quietly on the way out, just we've got a basket up by the, the tech. And I think we're going to have one by um, on a, a table out back, right? So we're going to have one of those on a round table. But if you're like, I'm just not sure. We would love to have a conversation with you. Because I would hate to find out wouldn't you hate to find out that you were on the broad road when you thought we were on the narrow? So if you would do that. Um, and if you're even like, you know what? I might have been assuming I was on that road because of what I did. I'm just not sure. I, we'd just love to talk. Somebody would, will get back with you. One final thing. If you're like wrestling, I'm just not sure. I think the, the book, Not a Fan, is really powerful. And I think going through that will even help you to understand if you really have entered in that relationship with Jesus. I think he does a really great job. I did that with a group of students. And in the last chapter, a student who was a son of a pastor in Korea came to realize that his whole life was based on what he did. He didn't know Jesus. And he came to accept Christ the day we did the last chapter. And he's now in seminary in North Carolina studying to be a minister of the gospel. So I just want to offer that to you. Get on Amazon. Can we end in prayer? Father, kind of a heavy topic. Uh, but Jesus, these are words that come from your mouth. And I know you said them to religious folk because you really want people to know you and be true followers and be on that narrow road. So, Lord, if there is anybody here who just isn't even sure, maybe they've been basing their faith on what they say or on what they do, aren't even sure if they have a relationship, Lord, I pray that you would just give them the courage to Write the name, phone number on that, and to turn that in. Um, or maybe you've just planted some gospel seeds today. But, Lord, we just uh, we long for everybody to know you. We long for everybody at 12th on that day that everybody who's heard this would be among those on that narrow road who you welcome into eternity and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. So that's our heart's desire. We just want to steward your word, steward your body well. Lord, we pray this in your name, Jesus, because you're the only Savior. It's only based on you that I can come to know you, and we pray in your name. Amen. All right, 12, there are a lot of people who live out there who call themselves Christian in Emporia because they think because they say it or they do it. So we, we all know people like that, right? So there's a lot of people that need the gospel. So 12, God bless you, and you are sent.